Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. Good to see all of you in worship this morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham, and we are continuing in our fall sermon series this morning, Christ and Culture following Jesus in a fallen world. In this series, we've been looking at what it means to be in the world, but not of it. We're called to be holy or to be set apart for God's sacred use. And specifically, we're called to live like Jesus in this world. Therefore, we must be wise, discerning children of the light. While there are many elements of the culture that can be affirmed, we cannot uncritically accept all aspects of culture without first examining them in light of Christ and the gospel. Or in other words, we want to see culture through the lenses of Christ, through the scriptures and the gospel. Remember, that's what the whole point of the art up on the wall is about. So this fall sermon series is about applying the gospel to every area of life and using cultural discernment as we navigate the world as kingdom people. Once again, here's how we've been defining culture. Culture is what human beings make of the world, and that is in two senses. The things that we make, so art, music, literature, clothing, food, laws, gardens, architecture, technology, and so forth. That is what, what, that is what we make. And then we make meaning through those things. The meaning we make is what we communicate when we make these things, because what we make says something about who we believe that we are, our identity and our purpose, which we're going to talk about some this morning, why we're here, what or who we worship, what we value, what is true, what is good, what is right, what is wrong, and so on. So this morning I want to add to our definition of culture, or simply state it another way. Let's look at this. In his book, Plugged In, Daniel Strange, uh, his book, Plugged In, Connecting Your Faith with What You Watch, Read, and Play, he says this, Culture is the stories we tell that express meaning about the world. Culture is the way we communicate and live our worldview. This worldview culture is primarily expressed through the cultural stories we tell, and the stories we listen to in turn shape our worldview. And how are these stories told? Well, think with me, right? I want us to reflect this morning on how they are told in various forms of art, of music, TV, movies, advertisement, and much more. And I may point a few of those things out, but I want you to put on your thinking cap this morning and think about as we talk about what culture is saying, what comes to your mind about what you're seeing and about what you're hearing in the world. So we should expect that some of those stories, because if we look closely in American culture, uh, we can identify what the dominant stories are that seek to answer the most important questions in life. So we should expect some of those stories, certainly aspects 
of those stories are not going to align with Christ, the Scriptures, and the Gospel. Therefore, we must be alert, wise, as we said, discerning, to be able to see what is going on around us. And that's really what this message this morning is all about. A call to discernment. Don't just mindlessly consume, but think about the messages that are being put out there, the stories that are being told for you to believe and to conform to culture. Remember, we don't want to adopt these unhealthy postures toward culture as disciples of Jesus, so I've been reminding you of this each week. Those unhealthy postures are to condemn culture, that is to withdraw or war against it. We see plenty of that and different versions of that in the world today, uh, with the church specifically. Critiquing culture, only discussing and debating ideas, but not creating it. Copying culture, offering cheap imitations and alternatives. Consuming culture, which is mostly, as we've been saying, mindless conformity to whatever is going on around us. I know I've said this before, I'll say it again, a lot of us who grew up as conservative, in conservative uh, Christian fundamentalist sort of context, we tend to let the pendulum swing in the opposite direction and end up in the other ditch, right? Where, where we are reacting or rather overreacting to some of the do's and don'ts that we grew up with. And that, again, is an extreme. And it's very in keeping with what our culture does today. It just gravitates toward the extremes. And as, as I've said many times here at Grantham, Jesus cannot be found there. So let's think about this. Instead, what we've been saying is the kingdom approach to culture is the disciples create culture and follow Jesus by, number one, entering the culture. So in doing that, we want to affirm what we can. We want to be fluent with the culture. We want to be able to speak its language and understand what's going on around us. Number two, to challenge the culture. So confronting its idols and its darkness, which we've talked about some already in the series. And then number three, appealing to its listeners, offering a new story and vision. My throat is dry this morning. I should not have danced around the house singing like John Fogarty yesterday morning as I made pancakes for our boys. <coughs> so think about this. Of course, for this to work, these, these three things, for us to be able to do these three things, we must have a firm foundation in who Christ is, what the Scriptures say, particularly through a Christ-centered reading of Scripture, and how a more robust understanding of the gospel will challenge the zeitgeist, that is, the spirit of the age. And so what I hope to do in this message is to help us to wake up to the stories— and the truth claims of American culture that go against our faith and to see cultural discernment in action, right? In other words, to help us navigate culture with a gospel-saturated mind that can see the world the way that Jesus does. Because if we're going to enter the culture, challenge the culture, and make an appeal to the culture with the good news, then we need the mind of Christ. Amen? If you're taking notes... I've entitled this fifth message in our series, These Are the Stories We Tell. Pray with me. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit's here, but we invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. That is, we open up our hearts and our minds to you. We, we set aside all the things that need to be done today or in the coming week. 
the troubles of this world, our anxieties, our fears. And we give them to you in this moment, Lord, that we might be open vessels that you would pour into us, pour into us the things of heaven. Help us, Lord, to know, to embrace the truth that sets us free. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, just a moment ago, we heard a good bit of the first chapter in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. If you missed that or you're listening through our podcast, which means you would have, you would have missed that, you can go back and read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. I'm just going to focus on verse 18 and 20. You can see that up on your screen there. But before we read that and, and talk about it, just, just a moment. Uh, first, let's set the context. Let me remind you of a few things that are going on in this letter from Paul. Paul planted this church there in Corinth, and he lived with them for a while. I remember years ago hearing Eddie Izzard, the British comedian, uh, poking fun at the Apostle Paul in these letters to the Corinthian church. says like, who is this dude who's just blasting these people for all the things that they're doing wrong. And he talked about it in a very funny way. That's what comedians do, of course. But we need to be reminded this isn't just some random dude talking to some random folks, you know, uh, across the ocean. Paul sees himself as a spiritual father, even says that, to these people. This church plant was strategic. It was it was done in a port city in Greece, a center of culture, a center of commerce. It was also very pagan. Again, as I said, this was a strategic church plant. Several years uh, later, after planting this church, Paul hears reports that the church isn't doing well, and so he writes them. So he lived with them a while. He goes away. He hears a, a bad report, and he writes to them about the various issues they're dealing with. And what is their problem? You can go and you can read both of these letters on your own, but I'll just sum up some of those issues. Because there's a lot. We're going to see that shortly. But ultimately, they have consumed and modeled the so-called wisdom of their surrounding culture. And I want you to see that that's what's going on in this letter to the church of Corinth. Yes, they're sinners, and sin manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. We're selfish, and so we sometimes do what we want, don't care what other people think or how it affects them. But ultimately, they are reflecting the cultural stories that were at work in their city. So think about that. Now look at verse 18. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now notice in, in the first chapter, he's still setting up where he intends to go. Before he starts addressing all of these issues, he wants them to be reminded of what power looks like in the kingdom and what wisdom looks like in the kingdom. Right? The cross, as he would say, is a stumbling block to Jews. For the Messiah to be killed, and not just any death, but to be hung on a tree, this person, according to the Old Testament, would be cursed. 
So this is not what they were expecting Messiah to be. And add the cross to that, this is quite the stumbling block for Jews. And as he says, it's foolishness to Gentiles and to Greeks. As we'll see, that'll become more clear in just a moment. But listen, what Paul is inviting us to do is to think about wisdom and to think about power and what God has done through Jesus on the cross. It does seem foolish, doesn't it? This is the wisdom of God. This is the power of God. It reframes everything. And this is the way God works. So you shouldn't expect the wisdom of God to be like that of the wisdom of the world. It sometimes will seem counterintuitive, right? It, it, it doesn't seem natural to love your enemies, does it? It goes against what feels like is an evolutionary impulse in us to survive. Think about it, the wisdom and the power of God. Verse 20, he said, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? It's like, so line these people up. Let's look at them. Let's, let's examine their, their wisdom and their power. Has not God made these people foolish? Has he not made this, this, this wisdom of the world foolish? when you look at what he's done through Jesus on the cross. So what may seem wise to the world is actually foolishness to God. You may recall Isaiah 55, verse 8, where the prophet speaking for God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So Paul wants his audience, you see, to undergo a reframe of how they understand wisdom and power. And he begins his letter this way on purpose because, as I said, he's about to address every issue that they're dealing with with this wisdom and power of God. And he'll define the problem and then, notice, respond with what the gospel says about that issue. And here's how the letter breaks down into chapters. Chapters 1 through 4, right out of the gate, Paul deals with the divisions that are among them. Remember, some said, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. They're divided among their favorite teachers. And then chapters 5 through 7, he deals with sex, sexual morality, the, uh, what we're doing with our bodies. There seemed to be a case where one gentleman was having a relationship with his stepmother. And in another instance, we have men who are continuing with the ways of the culture and buying into the stories of the culture and continuing to go to the pagan temples where there were temple prostitutes and giving themselves over to those prostitutes. And Paul reminds them of what the gospel says about things like that. These people weren't just allowing it, they were celebrating it, right? We're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, you know? And so they were celebrating these sorts of things. Chapters 8 through 10, Paul deals with some food issues as it relates to uh, the local temples and meat that was offered up in worship to idols. Some were eating that food, some weren't eating that food based on their faith, and they were disagreeing about those matters. Chapters 11 through 14, Paul deals with several issues that was creating chaos in worship. 
as it related to communion, as it related to some people taking their newfound freedom just to blurt out and to dominate over others in their worship gatherings. And then chapter 15, the big chapter on resurrection, where Paul uh, challenges one of the cultural narratives once again about the body. And so we need to see these problems to be reflecting the stories that were being told in the Greco-Roman culture of Corinth. So think about it. Their divisions were largely rooted in the culture's way of having favorite wisdom teachers, right? Where is the philosopher of this age? So forth. Uh, the, the sexual morality was allowed and even celebrated because the Greek story was that what you do in your body is inconsequential. The spirit is good and matter is evil. It's all going away one day, so it doesn't really matter what you do in the body. That was a story that the culture was telling. The dispute over what a person could eat was because folks got their meat, as I said, from local temples where the animal was sacrificed to a pagan deity. And this was simply the water that they swam in and the air that they breathed. They didn't even question it. And that their problems in their house church gatherings come from them mimicking the story of culture, that it's good for you to put yourself before others, to be loud, boastful, that's why Paul said, don't boast in anything but the Lord. To be boisterous if you want to be heard. And then Paul addresses resurrection because once again, the church has accepted the culture story that the body was merely temporary housing for the soul and that we should expect to discard of it someday. The idea that God would raise the body, matter, which to them was evil, was foolishness. It didn't make sense. It didn't compute. It didn't jive with the wisdom of the world. Which is why Paul goes off on this story of culture that completely undermines the gospel. You remember that in Paul's words. Without the resurrection of Jesus and our own bodies, our faith is futile, Paul said. It's all for nothing. We are dead in our sins. And we are of all people all people the worst because we are going around spreading lies, Paul said. But that's not the case. It isn't all for nothing. There is hope because of the resurrection. And like his letter to the Corinthians, it's not hard to see all of Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament epistles for that matter being the gospel's response to the stories being told in the culture. And, and helping guide the people of God in how to navigate the world around them. And this way I see the New Testament as an invitation for us to apply the gospel to every area of life. For the scriptures are there through the power of the Spirit to help us navigate the world and be wise, discerning children of the light when encountering the stories of culture. And so now I'd like us to think about the stories that our own culture is telling us and how it compares and contrasts with the gospel. I know there are lots of stories out there, but for the sake of time, we're just going to look at five big questions that our world is asking today. Let's look at that question, what American culture says in response to that question, and then we'll look at what the gospel says with some scripture references to support it. Here's the first one. And I'm going to say a little bit more about this first one than the others because I think this is, this is a big one, and it's critical. 
These are the stories that we tell about, number one, our identity. The question, who are we? Or make it more individualized, who am I? American culture says, look inside, not outside. Not outside to an objective source, but look inside to your own feelings, desires, dreams, and so forth, and freely express yourself. You see, American culture, this is, this is what it says for us to do, and we can see this message being communicated in TV and movies and all of the different ways that we receive the stories of culture, and the problem is this. This way of discovering identity is truly, if you think about it, incoherent. It's incoherent. If we look inside to answer the question, who am I, to find our identity, we often find that our feelings will contradict each other. Our feelings aren't always consistent. And if you've been married, you know, some weeks you wake up, you don't feel like you did last week. This way is also unstable, right? Our feelings are always changing. Think about your 15-year-old self. Right? Weren't they an idiot? Now think about when you were 30. Looking back when you were 15, right? You, it doesn't matter. When you're 30, you're thinking, or you reflect on when you're 30, you're thinking, boy, I, I, I still was missing it. When you're, when you're 45, looking back at 30, you're like, man, I, did, I, did, I didn't know anything. The point is, we're always kind of stupid, right? So our feelings are always changing. I once heard it said, somebody said, my wife has been married to five different people, and they were all me. And so it's also an illusion to say that you are your feelings. You're, 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 going, to have to, you're going to have to choose your feelings. You're going to have to choose your feelings. I said sometimes they're contradictory. So why, why do you choose, ask this question, why do you choose some feelings and not others? You think it's all you. And what we don't realize is that we are viewing these things through a cultural grid of what is good and what is not good. What is acceptable and what is not acceptable. It's a grid by which you understand yourself or, or by your creator and his will revealed in Christ. Is that, which is it? Is it going to be this grid of culture or by your creator and his will revealed in Christ, the scriptures, and the gospel? Imagine, if you will, 1,200 years ago, an Anglo-Saxon warrior walking the streets. He looks within himself and notices his feelings are aggressive. He, he, he's, he's got a lot of aggressive feelings. And in that culture, it's honorable to act out on those feelings. And because strength is a primary core value of a society that's going to survive, it's okay for him to live into those feelings and to bash people's heads together or do violence, and he can feel really good about that. So think about that. He looks within, he sees these feelings of aggression, and he says, that's who I am. That's who I am. 
Now, it wouldn't be unheard of, and it's, it's certainly believable that at that time, this Anglo-Saxon warrior may look within and see same-sex attraction. And in that time, he's going to look at that, and he's going to say, that's not who I am. Now, you think about someone who's living on the streets of maybe, say, Manhattan today, and he looks inside, and he sees these feelings of aggression, and what does he do? He goes to therapy. Or he looks inside, and he sees same-sex attraction. What does he do? He says, that's who I am. So you think about this because while we want to believe that we're in total control of our feelings, we all process our feelings through a cultural grid. And a lot of it has to do with what the world says is in or out. If we're honest, we can see that. It can come up with lots of other examples. That's just one. So clearly culture has an impact on our identity unless we want to be crushed by the weight of it. Like just look inside, discover your dreams, and, and it's up to you to act on that and to make your, make your way in the world. Remember the chariots of fire guy? He said he, 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 he runs to basically prove the worth of his existence. Right? That's the kind of culture that we, we live in today. And we need a voice from the outside saying, as he said to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It can't come from the inside or we'll be crushed by the weight of it. We can't live up to it. It doesn't hold water, as they would say. The second big question is this. Are the stories these are the stories we tell about our purpose. Why are we here? Why am I here? American culture says you're here to feel good, to make money, to buy stuff, to be successful, to live your best life now. Oh, I know some preachers may say that, but that is American culture talking. And they don't come out and actually say these things, but think about it the marketing, the advertisements, the movies, the TV shows, that you're here, the culture says, to feel good, to make money, to buy stuff, and be successful. And if you don't have those things, you're not serving a purpose. The gospel says you were created to love God. You were created to love your neighbor, to care for the earth and the animal kingdom, to serve others, to make disciples, to embody the kingdom to come. I just noticed I left off what the gospel said about identity. Did you see that? Hopefully you saw that on the screen and you read that. We are created in God's image. And, and remember, we are created in God's image, but we're broken and not as we should be, so all of our feelings don't get a pass. We have to run them through the gospel. We have to run them through Christ and the scriptures because we, we, are, we are not our own. We were bought at a price, and we have a purpose. And that purpose, again, is to love God, to love neighbor, to care for the earth and the animal kingdom, to serve others, to make disciples, to embody the kingdom to come. And to do that, we're often going to have to say no to what American culture says is of highest value. The third big question relates to evil and suffering. Why is the world so messed up? American culture says, well, people need more information. If we had better information, the world would be a better place. 
If we had better technology, if we had bigger fences and bigger guns, if we in, in budgeted more for, for militarism, if everyone adopted our political ideologies, there would be less evil. And we used to say if everybody would adopt freedom and democracy of America, the world would be a better place. But now we can't even agree on that as a country. So it really has come down to this. And again, I hope you're thinking with me about some of the examples of this that you see in the culture around us that is communicating this story. Because the gospel says, in contradiction to that story, that evil and suffering are a result of fallen human beings and angels opposing God's good will for creation. That is so important. It's so important because it leads us to this next question. It's sort of bedfellows, number four there, redemption. Who or what is going to save us? Who or what is going to save us? American culture says we can save ourselves. You know, and we're not really concerned about the globe. We're really mostly, if you look at culture, concerned about the country, our country. If we want it bad enough and we'll vote the right people into office, well, that will fix it. That'll save us. The problem isn't really sin. It's just bad ideas and politics. We can save ourselves. You know, one of my favorite science fiction movies is Interstellar. You see that movie with Matthew McConaughey? Love that movie. Love that movie. But here, just an example of using cultural discernment and thinking about the messages that are in things like books and movies. Who saves us in that movie? We save ourselves. Human beings from the future give human beings in the past the technology to save themselves. How does that compare with the gospel? I know that we have these kinds of visions of the future, like one day it'll be like Star Trek. You know what I mean? Where all the world is going to unite, and we're going to be traversing the galaxy and meeting ancient civilizations. But folks, we, we are on a course a scary course, that that kind of thing is never going to happen. And, and here's the deal, you know, Carl Sagan once said that if we ever made alien contact, what would, you know, they said, what, what question would you ask if you were that person making contact? He said, how did you do it? They said, well, how, how did you do what? How did you survive your technological adolescence? How did you not just blow yourselves up? Right, because isn't that kind of the path that we're on? Folks, Star Wars, they had not survived their technological adolescence. The Death Star! Star killer base, right? <laughs> because ultimately, unless God intervenes, this is the only path we are on. And so whether it's 10 years from now, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, this is the course. And so without someone stepping in, i.e. God, to save us, we are headed for destruction. And I know, I, I don't always like that, but I believe that's the truth. You may not like that, but I believe that's the truth. Paul said in Romans 8 that creation is groaning as, as, as a mother is in birth pains, and it's in decay, and only God can save it. Why? Because we're sinners. 
And so it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the year 2022 or the year, you know, 2200. We still have the same problem. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? Are you with me? We're sinners who live in a broken world. We can't save ourselves. Jesus is the one that changes hearts and saves us. And again, I've given scriptures for all of these. Uh, Number five there, every story has to have an ending. Will there be a happy ending to our story? American culture says the ending is what we make it. This life is all we've got. Life is short, the future is uncertain, so you do you. Get what you deserve. Or as I say at home when I'm eating a bag of chocolate, my wife comes in and says, you're going to eat that whole bag? I say, YOLO. (laughs) You only live once. See, the culture's affected me. Will there be a happy ending? I hope it's not just up to us because things aren't looking good, folks. But here's the hope because the gospel, which brings us hope, says Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on the earth forever. We were told that in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament, but those who reject his salvation will perish, and that's the truth of it. And so we can see just from these stories that our culture is quite at odds with the gospel story. You see, I'm a realist, but I'm a hopeful realist. And I'm a hopeful realist because of what the scriptures teach us and ultimately because Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected. And it changes everything. This is why we can press on. This is why we can embody the words of Jesus. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, somebody once asked him, if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I would plant a tree. going on living as if this story seamlessly in some mysterious way known to God connects with the next one. That what we do in this life really matters. This is why we're not escapists. This is why we say it doesn't really matter now, it's all going to burn. No, we're not headed for another world on the other end of the cosmos. God's not going to kick this world in the cosmic trash can, even if we do burn it all up. God is going to step in, even in that final moment. He is going to renew it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to restore it. Amen? Hallelujah. This is the hope of the gospel, one that the culture cannot give us, because the culture says it's just all up to us. That's a scary message. If you're not convinced of this by now in the year 2022 in the United States of America, folks, what are you waiting for? Where is your hope? That's why the Apostle Paul wrote this familiar verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which we've already seen in this series. Think about all we've just said. Now hear these words afresh. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform to the stories that we tell in American culture. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it starts with saying, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Folks, rethink power. Rethink wisdom. Rethink salvation. Rethink our predicament. Rethink what redemption is. Rethink the future through the lens of Christ, the scriptures, and the gospel. That's what I hear Paul saying. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will as you live in the world but are not of it. As you travel the earth, wherever God has placed you, as aliens and exiles, we do this by saturating our minds in the gospel. How do we know God's good, pleasing, perfect will? It comes by wholeheartedly embracing the Christian religion and religious routines and rhythms and holy habits. It comes through practices of prayer, scripture reading, through the sacraments, through liturgies at home and in the, in the church. Also that we would be properly formed in worship so that the story of the good news, you see, would overpower and overshadow all of those other stories of culture that are constantly coming at us and bombarding our thinking. We think we're so individualistic and so free. We're making our own choices. Folks, we are not. That is the great delusion. We are being shaped either by the secular liturgies of culture or by the liturgies of the gospel and the church. That is all. That is all. And so it's the only way we stand a chance of living as faithful exiles in a modern-day empire is if we resist with the liturgies of the gospel. Otherwise, we just go with the flow floating down the rivers of culture and embracing the stories they tell. It takes resistance. It takes intentionality. And so now after comparing and contrasting a few stories of culture with the gospel, and I, and I hope as I'm talking, you, maybe the spirit within you is creating a hunger to actually go to the scriptures and see what they say. To actually talk to Christ, say, Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you think about these feelings I have inside? Before I say yes to this or no to that and my, have my identity shaped by the culture around me, Lord, I want to know what you think. What does the gospel say on the matter? Here are some helpful things to keep in mind and questions to ask as we practice cultural discernment on a daily basis. You might jot these down. I think these are helpful. As disciples, we want our worldview to be shaped by Christ in the Scriptures. We want to see our culture through gospel lenses as faithful exiles. So we must be sensitive to three things here. First, our conscience. Our conscience. Do you know, the Bible says God has given us all a conscience. You know, that inner sense of, even when people aren't looking, right? Ah, I shouldn't be doing this. Remember, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1, which we've already looked at in this series. Romans chapter 1. Paul said some people, even though God has given plenty of evidence of his existence, that people would pursue God and seek God, seek to know him and know the truth and be set free by it, rather they harden themselves. Their conscience, as Paul said, is like, it's like they've been seared with a hot iron. They've numbed themselves to what's right and wrong by ignoring their conscience. Why would they do that? They are going along with the culture, the stories of culture. 
So are you listening to your conscience? It's kind of a scary thing when you think about it. If I'm in a habit of saying no to my conscience and ignoring those feelings, this isn't good. This isn't right. I shouldn't be doing this. What happens over time is that, that, that the power of the conscience, it lessens and it lessens, and we become numb to it where we don't hear it anymore. We can look across at some of the worst examples in human society today of people who got where they are because their conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. And these often, the case, are choices they've made. We get to choose our own adventure, and they chose this one. So think about that. Are you listening to your conscience, or are you ignoring it? Context. Are you mindful of others? Uh, especially non-believers as you, as you live out your faith. I know it's quite American to say, this is my conviction, I don't care what you think about it. But Paul says, our, their faith is more important than our freedom. And what other people think and see, whether or not you are reflecting Jesus, because you are, we're like angled mirrors, reflecting the glory of God and glory back to himself, right? It matters. It matters. People's faith means more than your freedom. Folks, that's New Testament. Lastly, community. Are you letting other disciples speak into your life? Well, I don't care what other people think. I don't want to be a part of a small group and let people in on what's going on inside of me. I don't want to be accountable. I don't want to be responsible. Folks, that is not what the Lord wants for you. We need each other to help discern what is good and what is evil, to discern where the Spirit of God is and where the Spirit of the age is. We need community. And I think all of these things push back on our culture. Finally, let's hear from Paul one last time. Verses that we've heard before in this series. Again, I hope that you hear them afresh. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17, Paul said, so be careful how you live don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. That's the invitation for us this morning. As we bring this message to a close, here are some questions for reflection and response. Again, I just ask you, open up your heart to the Lord. Open your heart to the Spirit. Number one, are you aware of the stories that American culture is telling you through what you watch, listen to, read, and play? We are being invited to be discerners of culture, wise, discerning children of the light. Maybe God is bringing to your mind other stories that you see in American culture today. Number two, are your thoughts and feelings being shaped more by Christ and the Scriptures or by the stories of the world? Do you, another way to put it, do you believe what you believe and acting on those beliefs because of what Christ, the Scriptures, and the Gospel says? Because of what you're reading on social media. Or maybe what you're hearing in the classroom. I mean, it comes at us from all kinds of different angles. And you can get truth in those places. But folks, if you're not 
looking through a gospel lens, you won't know it when you see it. You won't know it when you hear it. And then lastly, number three, are you applying the gospel to every area of your life? I know that's, that's so hard. I, if we're honest, sometimes we're, when we walk with the Lord, we're like, no, 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 Lord, don't open that door. Or maybe we even say, I'm not opening that door for you. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to reexamine that part of my thinking. I'm not going to reexamine that part of my life because, you know, Lord, I've been walking down this road for a long time, and that would be really hard for me to turn around and go the other way. Well, folks, that's called repentance. And there's no way to follow Jesus without it. It's the wisdom of God against the wisdom of the world. May we say yes to the wisdom of God. May we say yes to the power of God, to the truth of God, over against whatever the culture and the stories that we're being told. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm just reminded, Lord, this morning of... (laughs) how radical the gospel is and how prophetic a message like this is for such a time as this. Lord, when we hear stories, wars and rumors of wars and the earth is aching, the quakes and droughts and wildfires, It's becoming real to us what you said in Matthew 24. So God, we want to be your people. We want to be faithful exiles. We want to be with you and not the world. Help us to do that. Holy Spirit, speak through our hearts now. Show us where we go from here. Help us to confess. Help us to repent to embrace life as you define it. Lord, we're listening. Holy Spirit, do a new thing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.